I didn't care. Anyone familiar with the Shawshank Redemption most likely already knows the facts that the movie, based on a short story written by Stephen King, adapted by director Frank Darabont, and starring Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins, was a box office flop when it was initially released into theatres in 1994. But here's something you may not know. Frank Darabont had long been a fan of Stephen King, and he got a chance to adapt one of King's short stories when King generously allowed film students to adapt his stories for the princely sum of one dollar. That was on the condition that the films were never screened commercially, and so long as King retained the rights. In 1983, Darabont adopted a short story, The Woman in the Room, that King had published in 1978 as part of his Night Shift anthology. King was so taken with the result that he sold Darabont the feature film rights to the Shawshank Redemption for the paltry figure of $5,000. Darabont adapted the short story, and as soon as his agent Alan Green had sent the script around Hollywood, it was the hottest property in town. Studio executives were clambering over each other to get to Darabont's door. Of all the offers, Darabont took a meeting with Castle Rock Entertainment, the same production company that had been behind two very successful King adaptations, Stand By Me and Misery. Both of them had been directed by Rob Reiner, and Reiner expressed a strong desire to direct The Shawshank Redemption. He had just completed A Few Good Men, and Reiner felt that the star of that film, Tom Cruise, was ideal for the role of Andy Dufresne. Reiner also wanted Harrison Ford for the role of Red. Darabont carefully considered Reiner's sizable offer, $2.5 million plus the promise of getting to direct a different film. But Darabont soon said no. Shawshank was the movie he wanted to make. Would all this be true if I didn't care for you? But that doesn't answer the long-held question why did Shawshank flop on its initial release? More importantly, what happened that turned its fortunes around? I think it's as simple and as complex as this. A flop at the box office in 1994, it was the number one video rental of 1995. Going to the cinema and sitting on your couch watching TV are two completely different viewing formats and accordingly, they operate and function in completely different ways. For the cinema, the opening weekend figures are everything, and tens of millions of dollars are spent in order to position the film in the public's eye for those all-important Friday to Sunday screenings. If the film doesn't perform, theatre owners are eager to bring in a new film to replace the one that's just been ignored. For those of us who remember them, video stores were like that other endangered species the bookstore. You and your partner went down there to browse, mull over and deliberate on which title you were going to rent. And once you watched it, you could watch it again. And rent it again. And that's what started happening with the Shawshank Redemption. By 1997, the US cable channel TNT had installed Shawshank in its new classic series, and over the next few years, the neglected prison drama became what every studio dreams of, a package leader. All told, after worldwide box office and video sales, 
Shawshank had grossed in $80 million. But because of its popularity with home entertainment, it is estimated today that TV licensing fees have likely surpassed $100 million. You see, whenever a studio like Warner Brothers licenses a film's broadcast rights, they package a big, well-known picture along with other, shall we say, less popular films. Because the station knows it's going to get the Shawshank, it merrily ponies up the money for that while taking the smaller pictures. And as far as Warner Brothers are concerned, Shawshank is a cash cow because by this stage, they don't even have to advertise it. The word of mouth and its reputation alone sells it for them. What are you talking about? Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. So, what generated the word of mouth? Why are people so drawn to this film? Let's look at the subtext. The thing about subtext is that it has to remain precisely there it must pass unnoticed into the subconscious mind of the viewer. The second the audience reacts to an image as symbolizing something else, the instant they say to themselves, oh, that's a metaphor, the entire effect is ruined. So here goes. You don't have to be Christian or indeed religious to experience the strong undercurrents that run beneath the storyline. Sure, Shawshank is a prison, but really it represents our everyday lives, with its walls the obstacles we create for ourselves and the inmates emblematic of collective and institutionalized thought. Life is something that happens on the outside, while our inner discontent grinds us down. We invent words like system, society, organization and institution, all so we can have an excuse or someone or something else to blame. Instead, what we need to do is own up to our responsibilities, own up to our actions and failings, and in that way, we can release ourselves from our own captivity. My wife used to say I'm a hard man to know, like a closed book. Complained about it all the time. She was beautiful. Killed her, Red. I didn't pull the trigger. But I drove her away. And that's why she died, because of me. The way I am. Andy Dufresne is the personification of that very process. And since the prison warden quotes salvation lies within, we can see Andy as a Christ-like figure who carries our sins or failings for us. He is persecuted for a crime he did not commit, is initially an outcast from the other prisoners, but slowly gathers together a group of followers. Look at the scene where they are tarring the roof of the prison and Andy offers tax advice to Byron Hadley. How many prisoners are on the roof? 12. Soon, Andy is bringing them the word 
through the books he obtains for the library he creates. And what is the word? Hope. All the while, Andy maintains his innocence, but he is punished with over 40 days in solitary confinement. After that ordeal, he appears to die. Only in the morning, his prison cell is empty. Really, though, Andy has been resurrected by the birthing waters of a river and a flashing light from the sky. Once outside the walls, he sends a message back that he is alive and well and living on the other side. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. While seemingly a depressing story of prison life, the film is filled with themes of overcoming fear, of retaining hope when all else is lost, of nurturing friendship, and, well, since it's there in the title, it's about redemption. As I said, it doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. We've all made mistakes, said or done the wrong thing, let people down, hurt the ones we love, and regretted it later. It's called living. Get busy living, or get busy dying. That's goddamn right. But all that is the narrative, and you can find most of it already in Stephen King's short story. What I want to talk about now is how the film conveys those themes in a way that is uniquely cinematic, in a manner you cannot do in a book. The first one may be obvious. The visual design is heavily informed by light and dark. But let's look at the scene where Andy plays the aria from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. What is the visual design of that sequence? I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. Before we hear Red expressing those sentiments, the camera soars high up over the prison yard and the inmates look up to hear these angelic voices. That music offers the prisoners this sense of hope is crucial and it is echoed in the fact that Andy gives a present of a harmonica to Red. The bird is another symbol. We first see Brooks feeding a little bird and then later on, Red refers to Andy as a bird trapped in a cage. So when the camera soars, it's Andy's sense of hope that elevates the spirits of the prisoners. Now compare it to the way in which we see Brooks when he is released from prison. Although he is now a free man, the camera is positioned in such a way that at the gates, the shadows fall in front of Brooks as if suggesting that he is not a free man that his future outside the prison would be overshadowed by the prison. 
Now compare that to when Red is finally released. The camera is placed inside the prison, so we are looking outside the gates. We see Red walking away from the prison, stepping into a future that is filled with light and offering hope. Now, finally back to that soaring shot over the prison yard. It finds its own visual echo at the end of the picture, when a helicopter shot shows us Andy and Red reunited in freedom on the beach in Mexico. A fitting climax of a story that dares us to hope for something better, that encourages us to look up, to raise our hearts, and perhaps take flight. <laughs>